Welcome to Season 3 of The Unforgiving 60 with your hosts, Ben Pronk and Tim Curtis. As two ex-SAS guys armed with MBAs, Ben and Tim seek out people leading lives less ordinary and talk with them about how they fill their unforgiving minutes and what helps them go always a little further. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Unforgiving 60 Podcast. I'm Ben Pronk. I'm Tim Curtis. And our guest this week is probably known to a lot of people uh, within Australia, particularly from his star role within the series SAS Australia last season. He's back in town recording season two of that same series. But Mark Billy Billingham has a super interesting career uh, prior to that. Yeah, exactly. He came off the streets of Birmingham, grew up on the wrong side of the tracks, left school at the age of 11 and into the military after being knifed at the age of 15. 17, he was in the parachute regiment, did some time there and then into Hereford, into 22 SAS, the UK SAS, before transitioning out into bodyguard roles with a number of celebrities and then into the other side of the camera, as he calls it, into SAS UK and more recently into SAS Australia. And an interesting fun fact, we've just crested the anniversary of the Iranian embassy siege, which was one of the things that inspired him to join the military. Dramatic end of the six-day siege. 19 hostages, including the three Britons, are safe. The end came with an assault on the building by the Army's Special Air Services Regiment, the SAS, not long after gunmen had killed two hostages and pushed the body of one out onto the embassy steps. They threatened to kill another hostage every half hour. It ended with three gunmen dead, one in hospital and another in police custody. Kate Aidy watched the... Yeah, so we're going to talk with Billy about his time in uniform, about his time uh, doing close protection work for the likes of Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie, and about his time uh, filming those very successful um, reality shows. But we're also going to talk to him about the things that make him tick, about Mm. overcoming fear, about transitioning out of the unit and getting into the the public eye. Um, Some really interesting topics to cover. I also want to ask him why Hulk Hogan needs a bodyguard. (laughs) (laughs) I look forward to hearing the answer to that. (laughs) Let's get on with the show. And welcome to the Unforgiving 60 podcast. I'm Tim Curtis with my co-host, Ben Pronk. G'day, Tim. And Ben, joining us on Zoom today from here in Australia, Mark Billy Billingham. Billy, welcome to the show. Cheers, Tim. Cheers, Ben. It's an absolute pleasure to speak to like-minded, like-minded people. So let's uh, rumble. Now, you're in Australia um, again with SAS Australia, and we'll kind of get to that in a little while, but we wanted to start on the streets of Birmingham. Yeah. So most of us in Australia probably are familiar with Birmingham through the series Peaky Blinders. Mate, did you walk around with a bloody razor in your cap growing up? <laughs> Was it that kind of upbringing? Mate, it, I mean, laugh or joke, I fucking did. <laughs> <laughs> no, honestly, I mean, we... I was born just... It's on the outskirts of uh, Birmingham, uh, Walsall, you know. It's, it's a it's a poverty-stricken area and has been for years. I mean, it's, it might be all right now, but back then it was... And the thing going on there, there was a lot of gangs uh, formulating, you know, and I was like eight, nine, ten years old when I was already getting sort of in, 
introduced us to gangs of roughly that age and a little bit older. Everybody's sort of forming little packs and trying to prove themselves. And it's, it's mm. when I look back at it, it, it was crazy. It was like a scene from um, Escape from New York, like all <laughs> authority had broken down. But it wasn't that. It was, it was just kids didn't have a great deal to do and they, they just formulate these little gangs and everybody wanted to be somebody. And even from that young age, you know, you was hearing names of guys five, ten years older that had reputations and we kind of all thought that's where I want to be. I want to be that person that people respect and are frightened of because he's a tough fighter, blah, blah, blah. So, you know, there was a lot of uh, sort of little gang stuff going on and you talk about cutthroats and razors and that and we can allude to it a bit later on, but I mean, I got stabbed at the age of 15. I'd been in a number of fights where knives had been used. Mm. I remember, I don't know if I can't remember if I mentioned it in the book, but, you know, towards the latter part of it with the music and the skinhead sort of gangs then that formed. I remember standing in a, in a disco and we knew it was going to be a fight. The fight kicked off and we seconds, I was covered in blood. I didn't know it was blood at the time because the lights went down and I was mm. covered in white fluid, uh, warm fluid. And as the lights come up, I was covered in blood and I thought I'd been slashed and it wasn't. It was a guy next to me. He'd been um, cutthroated across the, right across the centre of his face, cut his nose in half, mm. missed the top of his eye and, and you know, I was like, thinking, you know, what is this all about? But that was the sort of upbringing and, and stuff that was going on in the area at the time. You know, it was, it was pretty rough and it just seemed the norm. And it's funny, I mean, we've seen, and there's a lot of research into places like South Central LA and even with things like ISIS and some of the, the Middle Eastern extremists or the, the Islamist extremist gangs, you know, young kids, if they haven't got that sort of strong sort of environment, they want to belong to something, don't they? And, you know, can can almost turn one way or the other where they go down a path of, of gangs or go into something like the military. And, and I guess you at some point made that, that turn into the, the military? Yeah, you're absolutely right, man. You want to belong to something. And I put all, all this, I'll go back one step on the whole of this, man. I'll say, this is all down to parenting, you know? Even if you're in a poverty, and I'm not blaming my mum and dad for this by no means. My mum and dad were brilliant people, loving people. They just couldn't control me because, like I say, I came from a poverty background. Mm. They both worked 12 hour shifts. My dad would be on the day shift, you know, six till six at night, all the other way around a moment. And then, so it was yeah. hard to control me. But I do look at the society today and the way the world is. And I'm sorry, I mean, if your parents ain't fucking getting a grip of you at a young age, and then that's where it's all going. It's going wrong. It's not always the kid's fault, but thereafter, once you've lost control, you've lost control. And yeah, it's it's gone crazy. I mean, if you look at the streets of London now, there's freaking stabbings are as common as a you know everything, anything now. It's ridiculous. Mm, mm. But it all starts back there, you know, with the parents and getting a grip of your family from a, a young age. And if you teach them right, right, teach them respect, teach them, you know, a bit of discipline, it stops. And mm. you kind of find I found what happened for me was. I got a little taste of sort of military life through the cadets and I, I gravitated towards being gripped, being disciplined, being shown respect the hard way. Mm. You know, you step out of line, you get your fucking legs slapped and that's the way it is. Mm. And we can't do that anymore because you'll upset somebody. You can't even, the truth, the problem with the world today is we can't tell the truth. You can't fucking say things as they are because everybody, you say something, you offend somebody. Mm. It's gone ridiculous. Sorry, I've gone off at a tangent as I always do. Go back a bit. Mm. Um, yeah, I saw the military as my, my saviour. I, I could have gone, and I closely did. You know, I'd had a, I had a police record at the age of 11, ABH, GBH, whatever else was with on with that. Um, and I was going that way. I was heading that way, and most kids around me were. And I went back when I was doing my autobiography to see some of my people I grew up with, friends. 
you know, a lot of them are dead. Some had been stabbed to death, some had been shot, some had done a drug, drugs overdose. And I was mm. heading that way as well. Mm. The military was my saviour, you know, it really was. Was, was there any points that put me on the straight and narrow and made me sort of, or forced me onto that line to go that way? But I, I, I really did love the the discipline which I was learning from cadets. I thought, this is my destiny, this is where I need to be. Huh. Mm. Was there an actual sort of tipping point? Was there a single event where you thought you'd, you'd had a bit of a taste with the cadets and, and you thought, I, I need to, to make a change, otherwise I'm going to end up stabbed or, or OD'd? Yeah, I, I talk about this quite a bit. I mean, the first influential man in my life after my dad was a, an old guy that I attacked. I, you know, I let it attack him, I was stealing his fucking hat, he caught me. Rather than give me a good idea, he spent time with me. So he was kind of first. And the second influential man was when I joined the cadets and the guy running the cadets was a no-nonsense guy. You fucking do as you're told or you get a slap. I don't care mm. what family you come from and where you come from. And that's, I thought, wow, this is good. But what I, what I loved about the cadets was, what made sense to me was, I was being taught how to read a map. I was being taught how to stop somebody's, you know, bleeding to death, learning first mm. aid and medical. I was learning communication. I was learning all these skills. And I thought, yeah, I can relate to that. I can see how this works. I can see me using this. Mm. Then my little bit of time I had in school, you know, crossing, crossing the T's, dotting the I's, arithmetic, fucking technical. I thought, where is this going to fit into my life? I don't mm. get that. Mm. So I thought, I pushed that aside wrongly. I pushed that aside and thought, this is where I need to go. And I thought, yeah, this is it. This is what, what I want. And, and I had respect for the people who were disciplining me and teaching me things because of the way they were teaching me. You know, there were just no nonsense. Where your teachers, unfortunately, their arms are tied, aren't they? You know, and you can sort of be cheeky and get away with shit. And I was. But these weren't allowing that. And I thought, yeah, this is this is where I need to be. And also, on the back of that was um, a lot of the guys just before me had gone off, been to the Falklands, come back. And I heard their stories and I listened to them. And I thought, that, you know, I respected them. I thought, mm. And everybody in the community knew them and, and thought, looked up to them. But they're real good people. And I thought, that, I need to be a good person. I want to be a good person. I want to be somebody remembered for doing the right thing and doing something heroic or brave or good, as opposed to the fucking idiot that fights every weekend in the pub or leads a gang, you know, and I just, that was it. That was my light, my, my sort of guide to sorting my shit out. The conversation on purpose and identity is really quite interesting. I mean, you, in the words of Eric Erickson, you'll find identity through good means or bad you know running with the gang or joining the military and some of what you've written about in your book um, and some of your background lends itself in many ways on a parallel to two of our Victoria Cross winners here in Australia I mean Dan Kieran and Mark Donaldson both got to this point in their life where they realized I can go for bad I can go for good and the force for good was joining the army that gave the purpose the identity and the structure was that similar coming into the parachute regiment for you, Billy? Yeah, it, it was me. And I'll tell you, honestly, um, I thought I was somebody, even when I joined the Paras, I, I mean, I was supposed to join at 16. I didn't get in there because I'd got, I got hurt, hurt in a factory working illegally. And, I, and anyway, so if you, I ended up joining a little bit later. So I joined as an adult, a young adult at 17 and a half. And by then in the West Midlands, I, had, I did have a bit of a reputation. You know, I was, I was kind of somebody in the, in the little gangs around there. But I knew it, like I keep alluding to, I wanted to be somebody better and do it. Anyway, so I joined the parachute regiment thinking I was a bit of a lad. And I got there and there was like 70 other kids or guys a little bit older than me. I was the youngest and the skinniest. And I remember looking down the line of 70 people thinking, fucking hell, 
<laughs> Might be about my dad to you. Some of the blokes, you know, big, big muscly and look fit and tashes and, and I, first time I met a Scottish blog and that, that accent was like fucking hell. I would never heard <laughs> but a Brummie accent that I'd had a fight with before. And I was amongst all these men. So I looked down the line, I was thinking, shit, you know, I, I, I'm out my league here. I ain't gonna be here long. And then my instructors, who I really respected straight away, was, you know, they'd just been to the Falklands War. So they would, they would, I knew these people in front of me had been there and done it. Mm-hmm. They'd been in conflict and and they what they were teaching me was for a reason. And they weren't bullshitters, it was all tough guys. And I thought, wow. And I remember at that, that that very first day looking and thinking, fuck, I want to be one of them. Mm-hmm. I want to be one of those people there that's standing in front of me who immediately I respect. And every single person down that line, tough as you are, was looking at them going, these are good people. Mm-hmm. You know, these are nice, these are fucking hard, good people who are doing good things for the right reasons. And I thought, that, that's me. I'm having some of this. This is where I'm staying. I've got to be here for this. And that was it. So that was my guiding light. And and I thrived to be the best at, at everything I could. You know, not only did I want to be there, I wanted, and I had to, I had to get through it. I had no, there was no option for me. I could not go back to the life I was living because I, I wouldn't be talking to you now. I'll tell you that right now. So mm. I thought, I've got it. I've got this. I need this. I've got to have it. And I want it. And I wanted to prove to me that I could be somebody. And I wanted to prove to my dad and my family that I put through hell as I grew up, that actually I'm a good fucking person. I'm going to do good things. So I wanted to be the best in the best, you know, all the time. So that, that was my drive. And so the, the parachute regiment for our listeners who aren't familiar with the, the UK Army, um, very esteemed um, uh, unit within the, the um, British Army, um, very tough training and sort of selection process to get into there. Um, but you've mentioned you, you wanted to be the best of the best. At some point, I imagine you, you hear about this unit called 2-2 SAS Regiment. What, what was the sort of genesis of that? How did you first hear about um, the SAS and, and what sort of lit your, your fire to, to ultimately move towards it? Yeah. I mean, I, I knew about the SAS, obviously, before I joined because the Iranian embassy put the regiment on the map. And right. I think every mm. person in the UK knew then roughly who they were or what they were. I had no desire back then to go to the SAS, I wanted to be in the army. I wanted mm-hmm. to be in the parachute regiment. And to me, the ultimate um, unit was the parachute regiment and still is. They're, they're amazing. Like you just alluded to, they have a selection process. It is fucking tough and they've got a great respect. And I'll tell you what, they are great fighting soldiers. So I was, I was, that was my first step. And anyway, as time went goes by, you know, I did five, six years in the parachute regiment. Good friends of mine who had got great, great relationships with in the parachute regiment and moved on to the SAS. And I was then starting to think, okay, I'm doing everything I want to do here. I'd been in, um, I've been on operational tours with the paras, which is what every soldier wants to do. See how you react in, in, in operations. And it weren't massive operations, but it was, you know, Northern Ireland, which was pretty hot at the time. There's people getting killed and friends getting killed and you were up, up against it. Cyprus, believe it or not, which is a holy resort. But when we went there, the fucking thing kicked off and the PLO was smashing everybody and mm. there's kidnappings. So it was a good testing ground. So I did all that. And I, I want to know how I kind of react, would react in sort of those situations. And I enjoyed it. I felt fucking, oh, I've got more to offer here. And then sort of about the six year, seven year point, I was thinking, mates had gone to the regiment. I thought, the SAS, I thought, that's where I want to go. I need to see one test myself again, see if I'm good enough to be there. Cause I knew, you know, massive numbers went there and very few got through. Mm. I wanted to know if I still got it and still had that fire in my heart to do it. And I, I know I did. 
And then the other thing was, I knew operationally they were doing a lot more than any, any other unit because of the level of work I was working at a strategic level, you know? Mm. So that was, that was it. And then when I got posted down back to the parachute regiment depot as an instructor, which I thought I'd love to do anyway. The day I landed back in the depot as an instructor, I knew I had to be committed to two years. First thing I did was go to the commanding officer and said, after the end of this, I want to go for SAS selection. And it does, you have to put a two year sort of waiting list anyway. So it worked perfect for me. So that was it. But it was the wanting to better myself or get, be do more operational stuff. And two, to really see if I was one of those guys who could do it. Hmm. And that was my drive to go. So the year's 1991, uh, you enter into SAS selection. What it do you remember? So it was January 92. It was the end of 91. End yeah. of 91, end of 92. Um, what do you remember of selection, highlights or lowlights? Yes, yeah, same thing, Tim, was, you know, back back to, to uh, the start line again, looking down that line. I'll never forget standing on the square in Sennybridge, Brecon, and... I always say there's 283 people. I don't know where I get that number from. It was probably 183. Anyway, fucking lot of people on selection. And these are all, um, you know, veteran soldiers or, or been in a while, been to war, done stuff, whatever they've done. And they've been around for because you have to, you had to do back then, you had to do at least five years, at least one operational tour. So I knew they're all experienced guys. So I'm stood on the square again. And, and we all do this as blokes anyway. We all sort of look at everybody and look at mm. it overestimate people which is probably not a bad thing so i look down the line again and i'm thinking oh, fucking hell, some switched on looking dudes here. they look the part anyway <laughs> and again you know by day two half of them are gone yeah, yeah. And, and and the beauty of that is what i remember is i you grow in strength i grow in strength when people fall by the wayside because i'm still there and i think it gives me a bit more confidence so each day i was gro- growing a little bit more I'd already been to the jungle three times now with the paras anyway, so I thought, jungle's easy to me. I'm, I love the jungle. So as long as I can get through the first phase over the mountains, I'll be fine. Anyway, obviously, that was a test and half in itself, and I can't remember. I mean, on day one, sorry, day two, which is the fan dance, I know for a fact now the numbers on this, 80 people went on day two, gone. And so this like, is the walk over the Penny Fan, which is a famous mountain range in the Brecon Beacons. Yep. Yeah, the fan dance, you know, and there's a time limit on it. And I'm not allowed to say what the time limit is, although it's in every fucking book, but I won't. So <laughs> anyway, so you did the um, you did the fan dance, 80 gone, and I was, it was a great feeling to look round. And then you look round the, the billet. And, and anyway, towards the end of the hills, there's hardly anybody left. There's like 25, 30 people. Then you're off to the jungle. So I'm like, oh, this is great. I'm in. Fucking jungle's easy. <laughs> so I went to the jungle with totally the wrong fucking mindset. Got to the jungle, and I'll tell you what, mate, it was horrendous. About day one, day two, it was just absolutely horrendous. And there's nothing hard about the soldiering you were doing there or what they were teaching you. They taught you already what they needed to do. Mm. The hardest thing was the navigation, of course. Mm. Other than that, you know, it was just being in the jungle, in the claustrophobic area, humid as hell, carrying a house on your back. And what you don't realise is, basically, the jungle's just like Brecon Beacons, but covered in trees. You're up and down hills. And, <laughs> and so I wasn't quite ready for that. And it was horrendous. And the, the horrendous part about it is... As much as the environment, the fact that you don't get shouted at, you don't get told whether you're doing good or doing bad. There's no encouragement. You don't really know what the hell's going on in terms of how you're doing. You should get asked, okay, today we're going to go from A to B. You're going to navigate. This is what we're going to be doing at close target. We're going to do whatever we're going to do. And off you go. And the thing about that is 
where I really realized that the key ingredient to getting your ass through selection, if you really want to do it, is self-motivation. Mm. Wanting to do it. Because no one's going to pick you up out of bed and go, let's do it. You know, you get up covered in leeches, you're sweating, you all know what I'm talking about. Hanging out your ass and you think, fuck this. I could just say I don't want to do this. I can, I can be in Bali in two hours having a bit of fun on the beach. And it's hard to get that out of your head when no one's forcing mm. you. So the, the driving motivation was difficult. But the other side of it was you realise that you've been watched 24 hours a day. Well, you say 24 hours, obviously not in darkness, but you don't know that. You think the SAS can see in the dark. <laughs> so you're being watched and everything you do wrong, you plays in your mind, you know. Mm. They always tell you, do not fucking bury anything. Everything you take in with you, take out of you. There's always the odd moment. You've got a sweet pepper. You think, ah, oh, fuck it. I'll just push it with a finger into the ground. No one will see it. And then you look around and there's the DS watching you and you think, oh, fuck. You know? And then your whole world falls apart. Everything you're supposed to be doing that day, you're like, play, your mind's going mental because you think, I've blew the whole of this, what I really want to do, doing this stupid thing. You know? And um, the DS do watch it all the way through, but... Yeah, through the hill, the jungle phase eventually, and I think oh, I can't remember how many of us got through that. There weren't many, if I'm honest. And I remember being at the end of the jungle, and I gave him my haul. I, I, I did not, I really did not know how I'd done, and none of us really did. And I remember sitting in the cookhouse at the end, and they sort of said, you know, call out your name. If they call out your name, you leave. If you're still left in there, then I guess you pass. So they, they did that, and I was like, but, but on the way out, so as I was flying out the jungle, I remember stinking a piss of the ammonia and all that sort of stuff. And I was strapped on the side of an helicopter flying out. And in my head, I was thinking, wow, that was horrendous. <laughs> and then I thought, I actually don't care if I pass or fail, but what I do know is I ain't fucking doing that again. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> well, I, got, I got out like a, you know, like a Belson victim. I really was. I was my stomach had shrank. I was skinny as hell. I was cooked in scabs and leeches and stunk a piss. And my uniform had crumbled because of the ammonia had rotted it. And I just stood there like useless with a scraggy little bit of a beard that I grew thinking this is a fucking nightmare and uh, being told then I'd pass and I don't think it sunk in until I got back to Hereford that I'd actually mm. passed it you know I was just like I was absolutely physically and mentally drained so that was hard that was the, the hardest bit for me then you know the next phase is combat survival being on the run and all that sort of stuff. And I kind of found that quite fun, to be honest. It was like being a kid again, being chased around Walsall. <laughs> but you got it to it. And the thing I didn't like was obviously getting caught and doing the interrogation, which I know you guys have done, but it's fucking horrendous, isn't it? And you just think, yeah. all I kept saying to myself is, this is a game, they ain't going to kill me. But it was horrendous, you know. I can't say the duration of it because we're not allowed to, but it's a long time when you're being dragged around, blindfolded, asked questions, stripped naked, told how pathetic you are, blah, 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 all that. And... It's it just, it's just, oh, you're hallucinating. And I was, I remember right at the very end, my, one of the, the um, interrogators are all weirdos, by the way, aren't they? He's, he's <laughs> stuck with his, he's huge and he's got his ginger face in my face. And he's obviously been eating garlic prior to, and he's shouting and spitting all over my face, which you wouldn't get away from now because I'd sue him for COVID. Anyway, so he's shouting in my face. And the next thing, he sat in a bath naked and I'm looking at him in a bath naked. I'm like, what the fuck is going on? But I was hallucinating. My mm, head was mm. gone. And I was in a world of panic and he was talking to me really nice like this. And all of a sudden he went like that. I went, what the hell? And I jumped up, what have I done? <laughs> I thought I'd blew it all again, you know. So they're the things I remember, you know, the, mm. the, the high points, low points. It was, you know, just thinking, this is horrendous. It's harder than I expected. The Hills was, 
you know, what I thought was the the, the passing fail, then realised quickly it wasn't. So it, it was a tough old time, you know. And again, seven of us and two officers, I think, passed the whole of the course out of, mm. I would say, 208. I don't think it was that many, whatever it was, you know. So it, it was it was a great feeling. But And then at the end of it, you know, everybody goes, oh, someone was it like when you passed selection? Was it, oh, fucking great? It wasn't. There was no celebration. There was nothing. You just go to the, we went to the old... Um, auditorium and the, the sort of major RSM walks in and goes right Billingham and you all get asked where do you want to go and I, I wanted to go to D squadron air troop you know I wanted to be one of those with the air gel in and the fucking lycras diving out in the sun <laughs> so that's for me I'll have some of that and D squadron because I had mates there so and this, they said oh yeah you'll probably get what you asked for so he comes in I'm expecting that's where I'm going I get told Billingham B squadron mountain troop and I looked at him and went what I fucking never climbed anything in my life other than stairs. Why are you putting me in mountain through? <laughs> anyway, instead of being in California on the beach, a month later, I'm in the Alps hanging off a 4,000 cliff by two fingernails. I'm like, this is what I didn't sign up to. But yeah, so that's my memories of selection and, you know, what it was all about. But it is, it's all about self-motivation. You really got to want it. And yeah, it's... It, it's it's funny that, that point you make about, um, you know, not getting that either negative or positive reinforcement. And... We see a lot of that, you know, I certainly found that on my own course. And then when you're as DS, you can really see people talk themselves out of it. And your point about just those little negative things, if you let that compound in your head, particularly when the going gets tough, you start thinking, oh, this isn't worth it. And people pull themselves off, even when from the external perspective, they're doing really well, mm. but they just convince themselves because they, they can't deal with that ambiguity or that that lack of feedback. Yeah, it's, it's, it's exactly that, mate. And like I said, going back as a DS, and that's what you're looking for. I realised then when I went back, as you've done, you go back as a DS, you're not looking at this super soldier. You're not, look, you're not looking at an image. You're looking at the character. What is he really like? Mm. Is, is, I don't care if he's fat, thin, he's done this, he's done that. It doesn't matter. Is he the guy who will pick himself up when the shit really hits a fan? Because that's what we're looking for and come up with a decision or add you know, something to help progress this and sort this out as opposed to just be a fucking sheep being led along. We don't want sheep. We've got enough sheep, mm. shepherds, you know, but that can work on their own and in a team. And again, there's no set template to what the regiment looks for. As you know, it's because I think, well, you've got to be this, you've got to be that. You haven't got to, because we have people who are good for kicking in doors, which is probably where I fit in. You've got people who are good for sitting in cars and watching people all day long, which ain't me. I can't keep still for two fucking minutes. You know, so the regiment looks at all of that. You know, where you fit into the job later on can come. But one of his key is the character. What is this bloke really like? What is it like with the chips down? Does he have to always be led? Does he have to be shouted at? Mm. Can he get himself up? Can he make a decision? Does he add something to the party? And that's what you're looking for. And you get that window of five weeks in the jungle uh, and, and Brunei is, is that time. You, you get that. You really get that guy. See what we've got. And because it's SAS selection, special SAS, there's nothing special about it. It's a selection. <laughs> You're not doing anything special military-wise. You know, all your special training and all the rest, it comes when you go to the squadron, doesn't it? Mm. So it's, a, it's selecting the core person who's able to do that, pick it up, assimilate the information, do something with it, and add something to, you know, the table, basically. And that's what you're looking for. Mm. So... Into the unit and, I mean, obviously a, a really amazing time to be in any military, I guess, in terms of the, the scope of different things going on. Uh, but the British SAS, no exception, um, deployments to, to places all over the world, Iraq, Afghanistan, South America, Africa. 
I'm really interested in the outset, Billy. What's your take on the the similarities and differences between the kind of street fights you're in as a kid and and combat as a soldier? I think it set me in great stead, mate, you know, because I kind of learned to sort of control fear and Mm. not be too scared. And without being sort of, what's the word? Um, You know, I I, I look at a situation... Scared to get stuck in. I ain't scared of a fight. I ain't scared of you know the unknown. Mm. I, I I am aware of it, you know. And I do think about it. I do my own in my head risk assessment. I'm not what's the word? Not callous. Um, reckless. reckless. Not yeah. Reckless. I'm not like, oh, fucking follow me. Let's go and have a fight, you know. And then come out the other end with half your head missing. I'm not <laughs> like that. But I ain't I ain't worried by it. And I I am a because of the way I live. I dealt with things happening all the time, fast, sharp, sharp. Didn't have to think about it. Fight happened, this happened, that happened. I was in a car crash. I didn't, whatever it might be. And I'm, I'm pretty good at I was, and I think I still am, crisis management. I was good at making a decision there and then, which was pretty clear in my head and, and able to sort of relate to anybody that was with me. So all the stuff that I'd learned on the streets of, you know, controlling myself, staying calm, coming out with a decision and working my way forward, I guess, worked in the regiment. It worked in in conflict, you know, whether it was in Bosnia, whether it was in Africa, all over the place where we went. And a little bit of my back life perform, gave me a platform to build on and, and, and use to go forward. And the same as the experience of being in Northern Ireland with a regiment, everything I learned in Northern Ireland, although it wasn't conventional warfare, you know, it was more terrorism, there's a pinch of that in everything we did, you know, whether it be uh, conventional warfare, again, terrorist warfare, whatever it was, some of that learning back then, my schooling, my growing up, that along with the new skills, all added to successes in, in any other environment that we ended up in, as you've just alluded to, you know, whether it was Africa, Middle East or wherever. So it, it set me in good stead and I, I could always fall back on it. Stay with the theme of controlling fear, and regardless of whether it's a street fight, a gun fight, or you're about to stand up on stage and give a public yep. presentation, how do you control fear, uh, Billy? You know, what, what would be your advice to people who feel that rising level of anxiety when they're about to undertake something that's a bit foreign to them? I think it's about being honest and being truthful with yourself and thinking, don't lead yourself into something that you can't really do without... If you, if you go into something that you really don't know the answer to and you've got somebody there to help you, fucking tell them. Don't pretend you know it all because that's when it becomes an issue and a problem. So when I... I never stood on stage before and I, I was thought, oh, I don't know how I'm going to deal with this, but I just thought, talk about it and thought, what am I going to do? Well, I'm going to talk about what I know. So I'm going to tell the truth. So I've got nothing to be worried about. Mm. You know, same as doing like this or doing anything else. It, it's... Um, you've got to have that fear, though. You can't just pretend you, you, fucking, you know it all and you ain't you're fearless and all that. Cause if you're fearless, you're reckless, you're stupid, to be honest. Mm. So that fear keeps you on your back foot and keeps you thinking and keeps you alert. So, you know, when you are talking, you, you're thinking about what you're going to talk about. You talk with clarity, you talk with honesty. Um, and the best example of that, I would say is probably boxing. You know, when I was, as a, as a young kid boxing, fucking hell, mate, I was beating everybody. I was a real good boxer and I could have gone somewhere with it. 
But I always remember, you know, before I stepped in the ring, and I knew, I kind of knew uh, the guys, you know, not on my level, I know I'm going to win this. If I went in there and I only did it once, went in there all cocky thinking I knew it all and not not nervous, I fucking lost. That was the only time I lost because I went in, and the guy wasn't really that much better than me. He obviously was on the day. Mm. Remember the fight, I'd go in there thinking, I think it was the only time I wasn't nervous. And I, I didn't really put all my checks and balances in place before I went in. I just went in cocky and, and I got taught a lesson, you know? So the, the, the control of the fear and, and the physicalities of that is, you know, just before you get to the ring, just before I go on stage, I'll take a couple of deep breaths, clear my head, you know, two, three deep breaths, clear my head, clear all the noise out, and then just focus about what I want to do. Mm. Think about what I do. If I'm looking at, I'm on stage and you know, I feel some freaking big audiences now, I don't look at the numbers. It doesn't make any difference whether it's one person from 1,000 people. I just sort of look and concentrate on one or two faces and just talk about what I want to talk about or do what I'm going to do. So it's about cleaning your head, clear your mind, stay calm, and just, just you know, just be in control of what you're doing. If it feels something's going out of control, stop, take a breath, rejig, and go again. And that's whether it's talking, fighting, whatever you're doing, playing on a football field, you know, you know, let's just say, how can I put it? Another way, some of the scariest things I think I've ever done is leading like a company of um, paratroopers or, SA, or uh, a troop of SAS guys into a, into a battle covertly at night and you're navigating, you're going, and you, you're on, you know, you're navigating. So everybody's behind you, concentrating on everything else. And the pressure on somebody like that is fucking phenomenal. And and all the time I'm like, as soon as the hackles on the back of my head start to go off, I'm thinking, have I fucking gone a bit too far here? Am I going wrong? I would just stop, take a breath and don't be afraid to go, hang on guys, I just really need to check this. Go back and mm. check it. What people tend to do is, or it'll be all right. It'll work itself out. And then all of a sudden you, you've started the snowball. Yeah. It's worse. And it gets, and you can't get out of it. Then you, you, you will fall into a world of bullshitting and trying to bluff it and trying to, hopefully if you, you know, well, you might end up fucking getting hurt or killing somebody because you, you stupidity really. So the fear thing is it's about controlling it, being aware of it and, and don't let it run away with you, but you need it. It's got to be there. That is your, you know, it's, it's your, um, control it's, it's it's your safety measure mm. so i always keep in mind you know before i do go on stage i literally just before the last sort of word gets mentioned that i'm walking on stage I'll, I'll just take two or three breaths calm myself down and then just walk out and just think about what i'm going to say get the first bit out and then i'll take a pause don't run away with things think about what i've just said what i'm going to say next what i've been asked and do it that way and this you know same as anything else you do that's how i do it and I think having the confidence and the knowledge of talking from experience and stuff really obviously helps because I know, I think I know what I'm talking about. When I go into a situation that I'm uncomfortable with, and you can tell when people's bullshit and lying, they do the old, you know, head blows like, Yeah, I've killed tons of people. I don't want to talk about it. Yeah. You know, shut up, you dick. Mm. Just, just tell the truth and be truthful and, and, and know your limitations. If I'm uncomfortable, I go, Well, honestly, to be honest, I don't really know that. Did that make sense or did I go off at a tangent? <laughs> no, it makes, no, it was makes good. good sense. Actually, yeah. and I was going to say, it's really interesting what you say about when the, the hackles go up on the back of your neck, that sort of, um, you know, weak signal detection, the ability to, to be attuned to hang on, something's a bit wrong, might just be your subconscious telling you something and then not just plow on, but actually pay attention to that and, and have the, and sometimes it's moral courage, isn't it? To just sort of say, hang on, let's take a beat. I just want to check, check my nav or I just want to clarify a point or whatever. Um, it's really important, and a lot of us don't do it because we're 
scared of being embarrassed or whatever. And, and your point about snowballing is dead true. We just compound the situation and it gets worse. Yeah, and it is, it's, if you've got a bunch of people behind you who really look up to you, you think they're looking up to you and blah, blah, blah you, you don't want to seem like you don't know it all, you know, but you have, you just got to hang on a minute, stop. Let me just check the map, you know, and in your head, you think, oh, that must be some fucking useless. I don't know what I'm doing. But actually, they'll think you're useless 10 minutes' time when you've gone totally wrong and you're all over the place. So stop. And back to the classic, you know, it's, it's better to ask a stupid question than to make a stupid mistake. And mm. if I ain't too sure, I'll, I'll, I'll ask, you know. So that, that's that's my way of dealing with my sort of worries or fears. So before we leave life in uniform and depart yeah. Hereford for your second battlefield, what are the skills, traits, attributes, qualities that you learned inside the wire that you've been able to apply outside the wire? What are your fondest memories and the things that you took from your time in Hereford? Oh, there's, there's many. Um, let me think. The, the classification, I'll never judge a book by the cover, is, mm. is a big mm. one because you spend so much time working against people, working with people, reading people, reading situations, and it's very easy to be influenced by outside noise. And I, I learned over a period of time, you know, you know, you go into Bosnia, they're all this, they're that, they're, they're terrible. This fucking... And then you get there and it ain't quite like that. Mm. So I've learned to sort of, whenever you're going to do anything, get as much information on it and knowledge as you possibly can. Don't go in there one-sided. If somebody's telling you something and giving you something, even the intel we used to get, yeah, take it on and, and be aware of it and have that at your forefront. But be, be ready to make your own assessments. And I, I enjoy doing that. You know, I like... You know, people watching and learning what people are really like as opposed to what everybody else is telling you. So that's one of the skill sets, the observations, the powers of observation and understanding. Um, what else? I'll tell you, it's turned me into almost a humanitarian. Being in the regiment and, and all the stuff we did and the past, you know, you end up mainly in conflicts around the globe and all the, all the nasty stuff and also environmental fucking disasters, you know. And what a lot of people don't realise is us as military people getting involved in making the world a better place. And it makes you realise that, you know, there's always somebody worse off than you, no matter what the situation is. And with the skill sets, the knowledge and the way we, you know, I know I know if I want to go into a country to help anybody, there's no point talking to the bloke that's shouting the loudest over there. You need to know who holds the purse strings, who can make a difference here. I know, don't waste my time talking to people there. Go head of you know, security, head of the police, head of the, and as high as you can in the government to make a difference if you want to make a difference. So I'm able to have that confidence and understanding of how to do all that, you know, and I've done it when I went out, when I left the regiment, setting up a business in Africa, I knew how to get to the right people because of the knowledge I have had. And I also, one of the other skills says is confidence. You know, being, having the conviction and courage to stand up and, and when you're briefing or talking to someone, believe in it, if you do mm. believe do it and do that. You know, and the regiment gave me a lot of that, put me in some positions where I was making decisions like you've all done, you know, when you think, hang on, hang on a minute. You know, I left school with no education. I'm telling the ambassador of a country which way his country should go. And but then I think, hang on a minute. Well, I've just been here. I've done all of my groundwork. I've got all the knowledge. I've got all my intelligence. I've seen it. I've touched it. I know it happened. Yeah, what I'm saying, I believe in. So confidence is confidence is one of the biggest skill sets. Security work, because I did a lot of security work after the after the military, which a lot of us do, don't we? Mm. You, know, you do it. You, you ain't gonna get no environment outside, generally outside of the military, as aggressive and hostile as what you've been dealing with. So everything else 
you take the skill sets that you've learned there in terms of security and safety and organizing and you tone it down to fit the situation that you're in now and it's easy it's actually easy for us you know so all that's if that makes sense all those skill sets confidence you know planning organizing reading situations getting things done is one of the key ones you know because we know don't waste your time talking to all these people who've got all the, the, the waffle and the stories. Uh, hang on. Who holds the purse strings? Who holds the control here? Who's going to give me the tick in the box for the Labour government to get work done here? Get talking with those people, cut out all that shit and go straight to the top. And that was all learned through being at the regiment. You know, you go out into somebody else's country and you are boom, straight into the attaché, straight into the embassy, straight into the top people. Hmm. So, yeah, they're the skill sets. So out of the UK SAS and back onto the streets in that security role you mentioned in the bodyguard role, including for Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie, uh, Kate Moss, uh, Jude Law, many, many others, and Hulk Hogan. Yeah. Now, this is kind of interesting. Why does Hulk Hogan need a bodyguard? Mate, I'm glad you asked that. I'll tell you, not, not a lot of people know about that one. That was before I'd left the regiment. I did a bit of moonlighting, as we all do in the military, because you don't get paid well, do you? So some weekends, you know, hey, do you want to come and do a bit of security? Yeah, I'll do this, I'll do that. And it was actually while I was in the parachute regiment. And Hulk Hogan was coming over to Wembley to do the world wrestling thing, like, you know. And there was all these crazy-ass fans and all this sort of stuff. So I got asked, hey, do you want to come and do some security? And there was a lot of wrestlers. And I got assigned to Hulk Hogan. And... Uh, Man, I remember looking at him and the fucking blog is huge. You know, he, he could have just picked me up and swallowed me. But he's looking at me and I was like, hey, mate, I'm your confidence again. Here you go. Right, mate, I'm your security. This is the deal. Da, da, da. And he's like looking at me and I can see him looking going, what? <laughs> <laughs> the dogs in his head are going, this bloke is either hard as fucking nails or mad as a fish. Now, if I probably try to go and slap him and this little fella here bends me over and twists my arm, I'm going to look a right dick. And I, that was going from my end. That's what <laughs> but I'll tell you what, he, because I, I spoke with confidence, this is what the deal is, you know, tell me what you need to achieve. I'll get that done for you. But this, do not go over there without me. Don't do that. And he went, okay, no problem. Great. So it, it worked. And then on the night of the, the, the wrestling thing, as he's coming down to the ring, I'll never forget it. So we're stood at this top of this, Freaking stairwell, you know, the curtain's going to come across, a few fireworks will go off, and he'll come walking down to the ring. And I'm at the top there, just, you know what I was doing, really, stopping overzealous fans running at him and you know, all his kit getting stolen out of the changing room. That's all you're doing, really. You're not there as a muscle, but people think you are. So as he's about to walk down the stairs, he kind of nods to me, and then he, there's these two birds, uh, ladies, lovely ladies, six foot tall, big girls, stood either side of him, and he just picks them up like feathers. Mm. Some froze him on his shoulder and off it goes. <laughs> and I'm glad he didn't start on me. <laughs> right, Ben. Ben loves my statistics. So Hulk Hogan, six foot seven and 137 kilograms. What was your height and weight at the time, Billy? Mate, I was six foot and about nine stone wet. 
Okay, he was 302 pounds and 137 kilos. What's nine stone? I've got no idea, and I've got def- no time for your statistics either. <laughs> Whatever. But I'll tell you what, I had fish like freaking lightning. I could have double tapped a radio check on his face and legged it. Billy, Tim, Tim's got this thing about biceps as well. We're lucky he didn't go into bicep size then, so. <laughs> the big Mate- gun. Um, obviously, working with that A-list clientele, you would have got a bit of a peek behind the scenes of, of some of the, the world's most famous people. A lot of people sort of from the outside look at that lifestyle as something to aspire to. Have you got any reflections? Would you would you trade places with an A-list celeb? Never. No chance. No. I mean, I admire what they do, you know, the actors, actresses, or wherever they do, famous or wherever they do. It, it's horrendous, mate. I mean... Yeah, the, everybody, oh, you ever, oh, yeah, but they're flying private planes. They get a lot of money out of this. Their life is terrible. Terrible, you know, and everything they do. The problem is the media are not out there to make you look good. They're just out there to pick anything you do fucking wrong. Mm. So as the bodyguard, that's mostly 90% of the job you're doing is protecting their image and making sure they don't say anything, look ridiculous or do anything that, you know, is going to, be all over the public eye and embarrass them and cause problems. So that's, and that's a quite hard job to do, to be honest, you know, because you've, you've got the issues of phones being tapped. You've got freaking mm. paparazzi like snipers sneaking through freaking bushes and grass all over the place. So you, as, as a bodyguard, that's what you're doing behind the scenes. As opposed, you know, everybody just thinks a bodyguard. As soon as you say bodyguard, people think six foot six, V-shaped, muscles everywhere, earpiece and sunglasses on, being stood next to a client. I mean, if that is actually fucking nonsense, mm. he stood there anyway, straight away, go, well, there's the bodyguard, there's a the target, if you want to take him out, he's done. I know exactly where he is. The bodyguard is, is the th- a good bodyguard, in my opinion, is, is a thinker, the guy who's doing all the organisation, all the planning, and avoiding these situations. Mm. No, don't get me wrong, if I have to roll around the floor, I can roll around the floor with some of the best of them. I, I'm not saying I'm a tough guy, but I know how to fight. But if I'm fighting, that means my client's vulnerable. Mm-hmm. I don't need to be fine. I'll bring in a muscle head. I'll do the fine if I need it. And I'll get my clients safely to where they need to be. So there was a lot behind the scenes going on to protect them. And, you know, I looked at their lives and they work hard, mate. They, they, they what, I, what I learned from all the bodyguards or, or all the, sorry, clients I worked with was how good they were at managing their time. You know, the gap in the morning, time with the kids, if they had kids, time with the kids, time getting ready for, for their work was catching up on a script, catching up on a part, whatever they're doing. Then they go and do the work on set, however long that would be. And that was sometimes, I think most days was 12 hours, you know, mm. finish that, they come back, a bit more family time, time for charity and bed. It was almost like they were doing, working off sleep of about three, four hours a day, every day. Mm. So if you think about that as a bodyguard, I was in, in at least another hour on top of that. So I was working, I'd got three hours sleep because I have to be up in the morning to make sure the security is good and, and still in place and the cars are ready to go and everything, all that sort of stuff. And when they went to bed, making sure all the windows are locked, the security on the outside is done, this is done, check the venues for tomorrow. And I'd have to go and do all the records myself because I could never use, I couldn't trust the drivers to do it. You couldn't mm. trust anybody because they weren't dedicated drivers. You know, you could fly into a place and you got given what you were given. Mm-hmm. So it was hard work. And then I used to look at their lives and what it was really like and, you know, like Brad would walk out in the morning and all of a sudden a picture appeared about him. He's looking, he's looking, look at he looks shabby, his hair sticking up and he's got a bit of stubble and that's all they want to talk about. And, and that might not seem much to anybody, but 
you know, for him reading that fucking every day, and then the next, mm. then the next thing he's, he's doing this, and they're making assumptions. Oh, he's got himself all tarted up, and he looks good now. And look at the look of his eye. I was talking to that woman here, and you know, the dissecting. He was horrendous, horrendous, mm. and all he's doing, he's trying to be nice. But according to all the papers, now he's flirting and he's doing this, and I, I, you can go all oh, this. It's bullshit. Yeah, yeah. It's an effect. It really does. Because you know, I've had it myself. Now it's, it's fucking. Oh, you're like Jesus Christ. And, uh, yeah, so their lifestyle is, is tough. It's a tough lifestyle. There are some wonderful pictures of you and Brad Pitt circulating, Billy, um, where you're having a good old laugh walking down the street. Do you build a personal relationship as well as that professional relationship? And how do you keep that in check? How do you keep that in balance? Great, great question, Tim. I'm glad you asked that because what people don't realise is you can't be like all the bodyguard films. You can't be, yes, man, no, man. You, you, know, you can't be that robot that looks good with the curly earpiece and all that shit, because it doesn't work. When you're bodyguarding with somebody personally, you need to know everything about them. You need to know what you're trying to defend. You know, you, you, you've you got to write down to their their good manners, their bad manners, who don't like them, who they don't like, their medical uh, history, blah, blah, blah. You need to know all that shit, because you've got to deal with it, because that's the stuff that's going to fuck up. That's the stuff that's going to go wrong, and you've got to be able to deal with it. If she's about to step out in front of the world's press to talk about someone for the United Nations, to got a, a white blouse on, for example, and she quite often likes to have a coffee in the car before we get there. No, we have a little break. She's got coffee all down the front. All of a sudden, she can't do a fucking job. Or she steps out there and she's trying to hide and embarrass. So I'd have a full set of kit ready for her. So it's stuff like that. So you mm. build that relationship. You become you become their best friend. And that's why the trust has got to be there. She will be listening to, you know, you've got, I've got to be with, I was literally sleeping in the next room to their bedroom, mm. if you know what I mean, or in the house with them or whatever. Mm. You get mm. really, really close. You have to because you need to know what's going on. Then that's when I knew, I really knew, you know, she'd be on the phone in the car and having a bad day, like we all have a bad day. And the driver, as we don't know, he's all of a sudden, his ears are like fucking sparks and he's like, so I'd be like, so Andy, right, stop, stop talking on the phone because somebody else is listening to it. So you really need to, have that relationship with them. You have to. You have to get close. That's the one thing you have to do. The bad side to that is you can't, it's hard to do your job. Mm. You have to draw that line, professional line, you know, between friends. And I did that. And I used to be, you know, if night time we'd sit down, we'd have a beer, we'd have a laugh and a joke, you know, you'd fart, you'd do what you do, you have a giggle. <laughs> and because we're just humans. I mean, but then I'd, you know, in my head, I'd be saying, right, that's enough drinking now, stop drinking. This is getting too personal now. And I'd cut it. You have to have that discipline to say, that's enough now. Okay, I'm done. Or you can say to them, okay, Brad, you know, you, you're getting a little bit out of order now or whatever it might be. Mm. It's about having control. You have to have control. And again, the other bad thing about being so close like that is when I was with them, uh, I was with them for a while and I think we were in New York. I was in every magazine they were in because obviously I'm still next to them. So mm. people build a, build a fan club for you as well. And, you know, I'd turn up, so I'd get, get them back home of a night time. And like I say, they'd, they'd get home about 10 o'clock at night, make sure they're safe, put some security on the property while I go out and do the records. Then I'd drive down tomorrow. We're gonna, he's got to open a restaurant or whatever he's doing. I'd drive down there and, you know, I'd be there checking, okay, we're going to come through this door, we're going to do that. And then somebody at the restaurant, oh, that's Billy. That's Brandon Angie's bodyguard. They must be coming here. So I couldn't do my fucking job. So it was already mm. getting blown. So unless you've got a team that you can use as runners that people don't know that you can trust, it becomes difficult. Mm. It's kind so, of counterproductive. 
So let's leave the fists of fury um, and let's talk about SAS UK, the television show. And last year, SAS Australia screened for the first time and you're back in Australia um, f- uh, filming season two of SAS Australia. How did that all come about, SAS UK? And probably an aligned question, how closely does it resemble SAS selection? Right. Firstly, I mean, I, I so I left, I became a bodyguard. I was this side of the camera and towards the end of my time with Brendan Angie, I, I kept getting these calls from different producers from Channel 5, Channel 4, BBC. Hey, we've got this programme. Would you be interested in it? Would you be interested? And I was like, not interested, not interested, not interested. And then one day, a guy got hold of me to do a programme called Unbreakable. And so I was speaking to the guy and he says, well, basically what it is, is eight fittest guys, um, six men, two women, ex-professionals, professional boxer, blah, 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 super, super fit, super, super people. And the program's called Unbreakable. The idea is to break them. And we'd like to take them to certain environments, take them to the jungle, take them to the desert, da, 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 da. And I got chosen to take them to the desert. And I decided to do it after a lot of messing around back and forth. And anyway, so I did this program and it was out in... Um, near, I can't remember, some jungle somewhere. So I took these these eight guys and I said to the producer, by the way, I says, listen, you're not gonna be able to do this because they're not acclimatized. And he wouldn't listen to me. Long story short, within 40 minutes, I fucking broke all of them. So then now there was not gonna be a program. So we had to stop the program. <laughs> we go, right, I fucking told you this. So we ended up doing the program. So for one part of the day, we'd push them through these tests in the jungle they wanted to do so they could get all the filming. And then the rest of it, I spent time teaching them a bit of survival, do this, do that. So that was my first introduction to being the side of the camera. And I didn't like it. Thereafter, some years later, the people kept approaching me again. Hey, we'd put this program together. SAS 2 Days wins. Would you do it? And I went, as soon as I said SAS 2 I went, nah, I'm not doing it. It's going to be cheesy. It's going to be ridiculous. Like some of them were. So I didn't do it. At the same time, again, I got asked to do another one which was in, involved SF type role, but it was uh, SAS would put this patrol of people through a test. Then the Spetsnaz would do it. Then the American seals would do it. So I thought that's mm. all that seems a bit, mm. I was going to do that. I didn't do it because the night before we were supposed to film, which ran exactly the same time as SAS who dares wins one UK. I ended up in hospital with malaria for the fourth time. So I was in a bad way. I didn't do it. And it turned out to be a blessing in disguise. Mm. SAS goes out. This, this SF program goes out in UK. I didn't watch either of them, but I did get feedback that, oh, yeah, the SAS program is actually all right. It's got massive ratings. It's not so bad at all. So in between SAS 1 and 2, producer calls me, kept calling me, kept calling me. He ended up coming to Hereford because I went going to London. He came to Hereford to speak to me about it. He says, we really want you to come on the show. I said, mate, I haven't watched it. What's it? He gave me a USB. I went away on another bodyguarding job to Nigeria. And while I was there boarding the hotel, I watched it. And I thought, actually, you know what? It's not fucking rolling around with knives in your mouth and garroting people and all this shit and talking nonsense. It wasn't about four special forces people, to be honest. It was more about people and their backstories and this, that, the other. And I thought, I looked and I thought, you know what? I could actually enjoy that because I saw my role as this SAS guy giving experiences, going through their traumas and their life and, and giving the experiences based on a lot of it that I'd done or stuff that I could relate to. So that's how I saw the part as being, I thought, that's not so bad, I'll do that. So I then got went down to London, had a meeting with the channel, uh, with the, the company Minnow that made the, the programme. Met the other three guys, 
at the time before that there was an SAS guy he left so I stepped in so I became the fourth DS met the guys and I thought yeah they're, they're good enough guys they're all like SBS uh, you know sort of special forces mm. group uh, I didn't really know any of them from work it was I was before their time and and whatever so I spoke to all them I thought yeah okay this is all right and then I joined them and went off to Morocco and yeah and I enjoyed it I, I, I kind of found it weird finding my feet what I was really supposed to be doing and but I enjoyed it it was like being back in the military again you know I was having banter a laugh and a joke there's no script to it it's not acting it just fucking rolls 24 hours of that got weird you know being filmed and microphone 24 hours whatever you say if you watch you know while you're sleeping went everywhere and we just went took took these people through a supposedly sort of variation of SAS selection now the other question you just asked me there is how realistic it took it's not not at all in term, the only thing that's I could really relate to with SAS is what we're looking for. We're looking for the true character of a person. So what we do with the program, we kind of take snippets of all the bits and pieces of selection and it all has to be physical or hard. Or, and we, the other thing we do is scream and shout at them because on TV, if you're whispering, it doesn't make good TV. So hmm. that's the TV part. We have to motivate and we have to get them going. Plus they've got nine, 10 days of filming to do what you do in six months. Hmm. So it's all condensed down. What you do get, obviously, you do get the physical side of selection, as you know, is hard. So they get that. that That's kind of realistic. You get pushed through all these things. No, we don't carry logs. No, we don't do certain things. But that's the only thing we can do to replicate what we do. So we do that. So that's kind of realistic in one way. But the main thing is the characteristics. We get into the people that have come on it, the recruits that are coming. We, we as fast as we can, we peel back all those layers of who they are and find out who they are. So we try and find out who they are and... and we don't try and break them. We try and get them to that raw point and then build them up again. That's the idea of it, you know. And to be fair, today, unless somebody wants to prove me wrong, every single one of the people that have been on the show that have been yelled at, screamed at, pushed for their paces, pushed to their limits physically and mentally, are doing better now. They're all doing good, you know, and I hear great things. And they've all said, you know, thanks for telling us the truth. Thanks for telling us what we did wrong. So the realities of what is resembles SA selection is seeing the person. Mm. delve into that person the physical aspects are condensed right the way down and the duration obviously we get as much out of them deprivation tired hungry all that sort of stuff to, to get the be- better person out of them so billy you spoke about the increased public profile when you're doing the uh, close protection work with um, people like brad and angelina and then obviously this is a next level when you you step up into right right square in the media spotlight now special ops units around the world have this sort of tension love-hate relationship with ex-unit members going out and doing public stuff and it's certainly something tim and i have been aware of with this show and and some of the the other work we do but uh the the uk has a persona non grata policy where they they sort of excommunicate a lot of ex-members who do stuff like that can you talk to us about, I guess, that as a sacrifice or, or what it felt like in, in terms of a personal um, uh, perspective? Yeah, absolutely, mate. You know, you know, like I say, I I left the regiment. I needed a job. I went into an high-profile job. So I was already in the limelight. I, what I didn't do was do interviews to say, yeah, I was SAS. I, I denied everything. I, through those years of doing the bodyguard and being in the papers, he was always speculating, he's SAS, he's SBS, he's MI5, is this. I never really sort of spoke about it so although people recognized me i you know they knew a bit about me they didn't know anything i, I never admitted to any of it and then came a point where but the third thing was i'd left the regiment the regiment didn't pay my wages anymore 
I needed a job, you know, and that was a skill set. It was a job I liked. It was e easy enough for me. It was good money. And I needed it. And I wasn't giving anything away other than my own sacrifice and my own security. But I knew that. But it was a balance of, you know, do I go back to Iraq on the circuit with no support, possibly going to get fucking blown up or you know, fuck that. This is a better life. I want to I be able to enjoy my time with my family. That I'd sacrificed for the last 20 years. My kids, like your kids, probably grew up fucking not even knowing me because I was always away. Hmm. I wasn't doing that anymore. So I took the job. I needed the job. And then, uh, yeah, I was in the limelight, all this. And then the turning point came for me here was I was, away, I was away with some celebrities one time and I met all these other bodyguards and all this stuff. And every single one of them, apparently, was in the SAS. One was a fucking Italian. I was like, hang on a minute. <laughs> What's going on here? And then I realised, you know, people have bullshitted their way for years, mm. as people do, and you'll have mm. met them, we've all met them. Ex-regiment, ex this, and they've all got these profile jobs and great and, and all the rest of it. And then I was finding, I was the bottom of the pile as a, a real fucking SAS operator. Not that, you know, I shouldn't be anywhere else because I just started in this world. But I was like, I'm having no more of this. And everybody's like looking at me like I was a Walter Mitty, mm. one of these. And then one day, just after I, I, I'll talk about it on my, on my show, so I won't talk about it here. I had this real close on incident where this bullshitter who said he was in the regiment for years, da, 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 and, and actually, I fucking was, and I thought, I've had enough of this. And then everybody then thereafter, as people talk to me, going, so, so you were in the SAS? I goes, yeah, I fucking was in the SAS. What about it? You know, I got quite an anti with it, and I admitted, yeah, I was. Then came the television bit, you know, I'm in there, I've already... I'm in the public eye. I'm obviously aware of our family security and this, that, the other. I've got all ways and to deal with that. But um, but then, then what I found was I was building a platform with uh, the social media. I do a lot for charity. I do a lot for other things. And that was helping me be recognised. And people were actually starting to listen to, you know, and helping me. You know, I was doing a raffle. And I'd, I'd raised 20 grand in a raffle for kids in Haiti to go to school. I thought, fuck it, why, why shouldn't I use this? I'm there anyway. My head's above the parapet. We're terrible. We, we're always, you know, you always worry about what your mates think and what the regiment thinks and this, that, and the other. And there comes a point, you, you've got to make a decision. And I was like, one foot in the water, one foot out the water. What am I fucking doing? And I went, you know what? I am SAS. Da, da, da. I'm on the TV. This is my platform. That's all, you know, I'll deal with the, 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 the security side of it and all the stuff that, you know, I have to deal with. And I also, I'm very aware of how the regiment feels, some people of the regiment and the, 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 that sort of process. And I do everything I possibly can to keep them sweet. You know, I send them, we have to do a particular letter to say what we do. And I've done that all the way through. And even after doing all that, they then turn around at some point and went, well, you're no longer allowed on camp, you know, which, which breaks my heart, to be honest. But I think, well, if that's how you want to fucking be, that's how you want to be. I ain't, I'm not doing anything wrong. And then I wrote a book, okay? So... I've been asked to write a book for years and years and years. And I said, no, 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 because I don't really know what I want to write about. And then this is something that occurred to me a few times, and you'll have had this probably. I'd be downtown having a few beers, and my daughters would come and join me, and my son, and my, my, my kids who are all grown up now. And I'd be with the lads having a few beers, they're waiting to pick me up. And we'd be spinning little stories and dits. And I'd be driving back home, and my daughter would go, Dad, we don't know any of this. We don't know any of your life. Of mm. And I thought, fucking hell. And I thought, I'm going to write my memoirs. And that's what I started to do. And that's why I wrote the book. Now, I did want to put some stuff about the regiment in it. Nothing, nothing that's in the domain, nothing that's going to cause any problem. So I'll put it through security. So in the end, I didn't put anything in there. So I wrote that book. And I'm glad I did do it. 
you know, but again, people will judge me for it. The, the funny thing about it is, yeah, fucking book's full of bullshit, fucking SES. They say, well, you've obviously not read the book, you dick, because there's nothing in there about the SES. <laughs> so you can always get that. And unfortunately, our worst sort of critics are, are supposedly our own people, our own fre- friends, you know. I get they're looking out for us, and we don't want to... The last thing I'd ever want to do is put any of my friends, as I call the regiment or the military, in any danger, and I wouldn't do that. I would never do that, you know. Mm. And it's just a shame the way you ca- we kind of get treated. You know, since I've left the regiment, I've never had one person call in from the regiment, say, hey, how are you doing? Is everything good? Never, not once. Mm. You know, and I can live with that. So I'm not saying that you should have to do it. I'm just saying it hasn't. But there's people quite willing to jump on your back when you, you seem to be doing all right. And I raise a lot of money for veterans and, and the regiment. I've raised money for the clock tower. I still do and I still will, but it's just... It feels a bit sad that the way we get treated, if I'm, if I'm honest. But mm. it is what it is, you know? Uh, turning attention to your book, The Hard Way, you do look like you've just spent a month in the jungles of Borneo on the front cover. It's a fantastic picture. And I was actually looking at Ant Middleton's book. He looks like he's been through hair and makeup in his pictures on every single front cover and then been photoshopped. <laughs> what, what are the takeaways from your book, The Hard Way? Um, it's it's real. It's it's a journey of um, trials and tribulations. You know, it's not. It's it's that book is not about. Look at me, I'm a fucking hero. I've done this. I've done that. It's about people can read that and go. You know what? I can relate to that. I can. That's me. That could be me. I, I see where he's gone right and gone wrong. And and rather than the mistakes I made in ten years, they can make the similar mistakes in one year and cut eight years and do a decent thing by. Somebody's already done, made these mistakes, and he's admitted to it. So that's what my that, that book is about. So you can take that away from it. Is lessons learned, basically. Mm. You know, and the biggest one is: listen, you might have come from, I won't say a scumbag. You might have come from a back, poor background, a bad upbringing, or whatever you've been, but you can turn it around and do it. I feel I'm doing decent things now, and I, I have for a good while. I believe. I believe you can do it as well. These people that are struggling, and, and it's very easy to. Yeah, but there's nothing to do in our area, and there's this, and the government's this, and the government. Stop fucking blaming people. Stop blaming everybody. Get a grip of yourself and go to yourself. Say to yourself, listen, I want to do something. I want to be somebody with respect. I want to be, I want people to talk about me as a good person, not as a fucking bad person. And you can do that. Mm. Every one of us can do that. So that's the lessons in that book. Coming from poverty doesn't mean you don't. You can't achieve because you can. And I have achieved things. I look back and go, how, how did I get there? I don't know, but I did. It's about perseverance and, and just going for it, you know. And so, Billy, we mentioned right at the start, you're currently in Australia and you're about to kick off a bit of a speaking tour. Uh, yeah. Can we expect some of those same sort of lessons to come out in your, your live shows? Yeah, it's it's a better version of the book, I would say. You know, I'll go through the, the a lot more stories, stuff I haven't spoken about here right each stage of my life really from growing up and where it all went wrong and why I got to where I did and when I did well I very freely admit my faults you know and I don't say because I'm proud of it I say because I did it and you can learn from it so it's all that sort of stuff and then it's into the fun stuff of being in the Paris and what that was like what was it like being in the military and what characters are in there there's a few character stories which are hilarious and then into the regiment, what is the regiment about? It's an overview of what the regiment does around the globe that people don't even know about. Not war stories, but what did, are you, you know, how did this weird life open sort of what it is like? And then, and again, what it was like for me and what it was like for my family back home. And then into stepping out into the limelight of 
this crazy world, this world that is 180 to what I've always been used to. And the fun story, there's a few fun stories in there, you know, of life doing that sort of stuff, which people go, oh, I didn't realise that, what was happening, what it's like. And then on to being this side of the camera, to that side of the camera, where I am now. And, and also there's a big chunk of where all this has got me to, which I'm proud of, which is my platform for the charities that I do. Mm. And so on, there's a big on, chunk of that. On top of all of that, the opportunity to grab some some cracking merch. We've had a look at your your website, bit mm. of bit of decent merchandise, and we noticed that a, a theme throughout all of it's the uh, the line from that Flecker poem that's on the clock tower in Hereford, always a little further. What what does that mean to you? We love that line as well, but mm. what, what's it mean to you, Billy? This is on my kids' life, Ben. Right. So when the story starts, when I I attacked the, this old guy back in the time, and I was nine years old, I remember it. I ended up going to his boxing club. And he took me into a little back room and I thought, fucking hell, he's going to beat me up. He's going to, I didn't know what he was going to do. And he took time and taught me about, he goes, let me tell you what boxing is. And he educated me and I'll never forget it. He says, boxing's not a, a sport of brutality. Boxing is a poor man's game of chess. It's about watching somebody. It's about thinking. It's about anticipating. It's about being one step ahead. And he's teaching me all these words and all these things and what he's trying to tell me about it. And he says, it's, always, it's about always going, always a little further. He said, that's what he said to me. Back then, he goes, always gone a little bit further. When you think you can't do it anymore, you can. And go for it. And you'll be you'll be amazed what you can achieve. Never forgot it. And then the weirdest thing, obviously, when I got to the regiment and, mm-hmm. you know, from the the, the, the poem, it's there, always a little further. So I've just adopted that as my mantra. And it's actually my how I feel about life. When you're hanging out your ass, you know what? If you step one step forward, it's one step forward. If you're going forward, it's in the right direction. And we can all do it. It's easy to say can't, can't. But you can just drop that T and it, can, it becomes can. And you can. And you can do it. You know, it's bullshit that when people go, oh, if you put your mind to it, you can do anything you want. No, you can't. <laughs> if you did, I'd be fucking Georgie Best. No, I wasn't. So you can't. But you can certainly do better. And that mantra, always a little further, is my, I live and die by it. Isn't that a wonderful place to leave it from inside the boxing ring, that advice to the clock tower, the James L. Roy Flacker line, always a little further. Mark, Billy, Billingham, thank you very much for being on the Unforgiving 60 podcast. Guys, pleasure to speak with you. I hope one day I'll meet you for a beer. For sure, mate. (laughs) Our shout.
Now to the debrief. We try to go always a little further in this podcast and greatly appreciate your input. Please let us know your feedback, the good, the bad, or the ugly. Also, if you know someone who is living a life less ordinary, we'd love to hear about them. You can get in touch at debrief at unforgiving60.com. That's debrief at unforgiving60.com. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please tell your friends and write a review for us on Apple Podcasts. Until next episode, keep filling your unforgiving minutes with 60 seconds worth of distance run. See you next time on The Unforgiving 60.